Hello, Brian. Hey, Adam. Hey, John. Doing well. There's Arian. And then uh, Nathaniel, are you there? I am. And do you know if is Eric going to be able to join us? He said he was going to, but then I wasn't. I'm... I think he will. Yeah. Okay. He just responded in chat as though he's going to. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, just now or? Um... Yeah, yeah. Oh, like good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirty seconds ago. Excellent. Um, alrighty. Yeah, I know we've got, <laughs> and I don't know if Matt was going to be able to join us, Matt Keeter. I believe he was installing the app on it. Uh oh. <laughs> I think I think Robert might be doing the same. It's like okay, look, and I know it's very on brand for us to open all these spaces, complaining about Twitter Spaces. But can we Twitter Spaces? Can we please make the desktop app? allow you to speak in addition to listen I, and i get that i know that's a totally separate code path and this is like much more complicated than we can possibly imagine but it is really annoying that people cannot join for the desktop yeah until they come up with a fix for that robert is coming in by way of my proxy so you'll get two for the price of one on this one <laughs> wait are we getting two voices or is this going to be like Brian, uh, Robert says... Right, exactly. Uh, It'll vary. <laughs> it depends. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, this is really weird to be seeing Steve's avatar have Robert's voice. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. I, I, I feel like I need... You just gotta... You'll just have to deal with it. Sorry, until they... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> is it... Oh, my God. This is, I think... Now I don't. Now I don't know who's talking. It could be anyone telling Brian. Just <laughs> and it's on brand for both of them, so it's very hard to know. Uh, all right. Well, and I'll be there. Is there is Matt, and then the uh, I think Eric is the um, just waiting on Eric, but we can. Um... All right. Well, we can get going here. Um, Arian, do you want to uh, to? There is Eric. Um, do you want to pick us up with um, – so, uh, actually, let me set the stage a little bit here because we were trying to pull off something so ridiculous that it's actually very hard to have a single Twitter space about it. We were doing the bring-up of the sidecar switch, which we're going to be talking a lot about, and Arian did a terrific Twitter space on, on the, the design of that. While we were doing that, we were also completing the bring-up of Gimlet, which was our compute sled, which we had. Uh, we did a Twitter space on successfully bring, being able to bring the SP3 out of reset. Uh, as it turns out, we, uh, we definitely felt the wind was at the back, which was true, but we had some uh, very serious adventures ahead of us when we last talked about Gimlet. So we were finishing up the bring up of, of Gimlet and bring up all the components there. And then we also have, we got, we got a cameo from another board that we also did that we brought up in the middle of all of this, uh, the PowerShell controller, which it, it fortunately ended up being, that was, that was much smaller. And then we're also trying to finish up the, trying to, to make the necessary revisions for the Rev2 of, of our Gimlet schematics. There's a whole lot of stuff going on, more or less at the same time with not many more people than are here. Basically, the people that are speakers were the ones who were doing this. So it was an incredibly small team. Uh, really exciting time. Arian, I thought you might, we might kick us off with 
you and I, before the starting bring up, which we're going to do in Emeryville, not Minnesota, I just remember us walking, kind of musing about the differences between sidecar bring up and gimlet bring up and the things that were going to be uh, that we felt would be more in hand and then the things that we thought were going to be way more challenging. Do you want to maybe set the stage with that? And our, while you do that, you might define some of those terms yes. as we yeah, go. Yeah, we're know, uh, we've got lots. Of, we've got lots of code names going on that uh, the avid listener will will, will recall. But um, you know, we want to appeal to everyone. Sure. So let's start with Gimlet, which is our compute node. It's a uh, an AMD uh, Epic based server, um, you know, with a NIC and NVMe uh, drives in the front. Um, so that was a, that was the board. The team was already like in bring up with but we were struggling to get the uh the amd cpu out of reset to get it out of reset and then uh later some some follow-up tails with the nick um and then we have sidecar which is a a a board built around the tofino 2 uh switching asec from intel which is a a large um like ethernet switch uh, capable of up to 12 terabits per second of throughput, um, and that thing does not have a host CPU on the bo- on the board. We're using we're, we're connecting that using an external PCI Express cable to one of our compute nodes in the rack. Um, and so one of the things that we were musing about was that well, there's a lot of circuitry on this on this sidecar board that we have sort of explored already once in in Gimlet because they share. Uh, quite a bit of uh, functionality, especially when it comes to uh, board control. So there's a there's a, what we call the service processor, which is a CPU that like an ARM CPU that manages uh, things like like uh, power supplies uh, turning on and off, fans turning on and off, like all, all the all the uh, sort of environmental pieces that you need in order to even start working with an ASIC or a, a large SOC. Uh, and so a bunch of that stuff was replicated to Sidecar. So we felt like, okay, this is that that should be, you know, pretty doable. We'll have that in hand because this is the second time we've seen it, and we've made some revisions that should help us get past the first hurdles um, that we encountered while we did the the initial bring up of Gimlet. Uh, that turned out to be mostly true. We did not have significant issues that would get us stumped. To basically power up all pieces and to sort of get some get get the things out of reset, um, but then the Tofino 2 ASIC is a uh, rather beefy device um, requiring lots and lots and lots of power and a very tight uh, uh, envelope in which it needs to operate, and so uh, that was that was going to be our main challenge. We felt uh, to get the, the the PDN well to get the PDN to power up would have been fine. We we had some we had confidence that that would work, but then to really keep it within the the narrow um, operating range that it needs to operate in under load conditions for this ASIC that was going to be a challenge. And Aaron, you had a great Twitter thread earlier today that kind of expanded on this challenge. Um, and Eric is here who designed the PDN. Do you, could you elaborate a little bit on why this is so challenging? Like what a load step means um, and why this load step was really gnarly? Yes. Yeah, so uh, basically when an ASIC turns on or when an ASIC suddenly starts doing more work, more transistors start switching. 
uh, or they suddenly you know, turn on. And during that process, a uh, an ASIC currently draws it immediately draws a lot more current if the voltage stays the same. This is not this is different to, for example, an AMD CPU or an Intel CPU where they change the core voltage, so they step up the voltage in order to not need as much current to deliver the same amount of power through the device. This, is all, this goes hand-in-hand hand with clocks that go up in frequency. That, that does not happen in a lot of these larger ASICs. So may, that might be happening in a GPU, but definitely in this networking ASIC, that is not true. Uh, everything stays rather sort of fixed. Um, but what that means is that once the device, once you apply power to this device and you then release the reset, it suddenly jumps by 300 amps in power. Um, and that happens in the span of about a microsecond um, and during that and you uh, be, and then because of how a PDN is designed on a circuit board such a PDN is never can never instantaneously respond to a, a load step like that it needs to it needs to sense that more current is required before the controller will apply like basically allow more current through the the power MOSFETs that it's driving and so there's a slight lag behind, like as the as the PDN tries to catch up when the ASIC suddenly you know stomped on the accelerator, and as a result the voltage will drop a little bit because of uh, uh, hand wavy hand wavy inductance and and uh, uh, as as current flows through the board. When that voltage drops, you need to stay above the absolute limit of the ASIC because if you drop below, if that voltage drops below the, the, the limit, then you're going to get, you know, best case, you're going to get errors, like bit errors, because transistors will not be switching in time or they, uh, uh, worst case, you might have sort of things that might hang, like they might not switch completely. And so you might induce more current through these transistors, potentially causing higher currents that might damage the part. So there's a variety of different reasons why you do not want to uh, have that voltage drop below the le- the limit that is set for this part. And, and um, that's the droop, right? I mean, that's the- that that is what is referred to as droop. Yes. And then similarly, when you when the ASIC suddenly stops, like for example, when the ASIC has been going at full speed, and you suddenly apply the reset again, suddenly all these transistors stop switching and now there's this basically excess current that is underway because the PDN hasn't realized yet that it needs to step down the amount of current that is being uh, being released into the into the into the board uh, and now you get an overshoot because the, the, there's a similar effect uh, on the on the way up and that overshoot can potentially cause an overvoltage if that spike is sufficiently high that pushes you out of the upper limit and that might now damage the part so you have to operate within this narrow window uh, never undershoot and never overshoot too far because otherwise your your part is either not going to function properly or it might damage itself. And, and when, we, when we first looked into this part, Arian, I remember you just being wide-eyed about the like, wow, this is going to be really hard to hit. And um, we were, I mean, very excited, Eric, when you came aboard um, as a, a uh, someone with a great deal of domain expertise. And Eric, I'd be curious, like, so what are the actual numbers in terms of the requirement for droop and overshoot for this part? Yeah, I want to I, I want to do say that I don't know how confidential the numbers are, so I've been a little bit vague. Oh, oh the, the, the yeah. approximate. Yeah, the approximate. On on these parts, you know, the, you're running on these process nodes around 900 millivolts, you know, 800 to 900 millivolts, and 
generally you have, you know, a few percent of undershoot you can have. So they expect these things, you know, TDP is a, is a, you know, the total dissipated power, or whatever that stands for. The, the TDP is somewhere in the, you know, however many hundred watts, but that's specified at a specific voltage. And so you don't want to go above that. Otherwise you'll, you know, dissipate more power than you intend to, and you'll blow yourself up. And then there's an absolute max where you'll cause physical damage to the transistors. And then on the minimum side, you're talking a couple of percent. So like three to 4% of undershoot from the power rating. So let's say your power rating is, you know, a volt, you can drop 30 millivolts and be okay. But if you drop more than 30 millivolts, you're hosed. That just feels very tight. And this, so, is, I'll, I'll this make, is all at like 300 amps. To make it to make it tighter, yes, we're talking about a step that is a couple hundred amps, but we're designed for three hundred amps, and we have, I think, on the on the bottom end, we have how how many how many millivolts do we have on the bottom end? Something like five or six millivolts of buffer. Yeah, we have we have like seven millivolts of margin, I think. Yeah. Above the spec, which apparently is uh, like, you know, world class. Well, what's the, and so, so, well, part of what made this very exciting is that we were also doing our. We're not using the same power controller that everyone else is using. We're using actually the same part that we're using in Gimlet, the the RA two twenty nine six eighteen, and you know it's a good slash scary sign when your vendor is like, "We're really excited to see if this works." And you're like, uh, like, no, no, if this works, it would be great. <laughs> you're, like, yeah. you're saying uh, if a lot, right? You're saying if a lot, right? It's like, no, this is important human experimentation. Well, that's, literally, that's literally what they said. Like, yeah, we, they told us that we were the first to try this design. And while it all works in theory, we were going to put the theory <laughs> to the test. They said everybody else just copies the reference design, which used, I think, Infineon? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, these are Infineon controllers. And, you know, basically the way these the way these parts work is there's there's all kinds of highly proprietary ways of tweaking their control loops to make them happy. This isn't a traditional just PID controller and you go about your merry way. Uh, this is a you know nonlinear controller. There's all sorts of crazy things they have in there. And apparently with the Infineon parts, and maybe this is just you know their experience or whatever, but it's kind of a they send the app engineer out and they tune the thing for you. And yeah, they spend like a week in the lab and they twiddle their little bits here and there and things get better and magically your stuff's done. But you really have no idea what the hell just happened. <laughs> like what's going into the chip, how it's being programmed, what those are doing, whatever. Renaissance, bless their arts, they have a fantastic guide that shows you here are all the different control loop parameters you have access to. Here is what each of them does on an example design. If you go up, this is what it looks like. If you go down, this is what it looks like. Here's kind of the order you want to tune things in. And so with that very, very clear guide, I was able to get that thing tuned in within a couple days into, you know, seven millivolts of margin, which was fantastic. It, and so it, it, it was really yeah. nice. <laughs> it was amazing. And so in the, it's also, this might be a good time too, Eric, to talk about the load slammer. We had mentioned the SDOE. When we were talking about the the bringing up the SP3 on the gimlet, but the load slammer was really important here. Maybe you want to explain what that is and and how we used yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So with a chip like this, you don't just you know 
plug the thing in and go YOLO and hit power on. Because even if you were able to do that, you still have to have software to like turn the thing on and have it do intelligent things and provide clocks and all that other crap. So there's a whole lot of, you know, things that build up to actually getting it to pull real power other than trans, you know, static transistor leakage. So ahead of time, what we did is we got a load slammer adapters. The load slammer is a company and they make uh, electronic loads for industry. And they have this little module that you can plug in that'll do like 500 amps and, you know, some absurd time, like 170 nanoseconds or something. If the voltage is right and caveat, caveat, asterisk. Uh, but basically you have this fake load that you put on just like the SDLE in an AMD design or the Intel version of that. You plug this fake load in and you get it to basically simulate a load transient like the worst case the chip would ever do. And you want to go above and beyond that because even if you could just plug the chip in and you know turn it on and say, hey, here you go, let's go. You can't go above what the chip will pull. And you also can't test other VID set points because based on process variations, you might want to run each of these chips at slightly different voltages. And so the load slammer or something similar to it allows you to test the entire power delivery network uh, before you ever power on actual silicon. And this is done heavily in uh, ASIC designs, especially like first article silicon designs. You want to make sure that your PDN is good and happy before you plug in your, you know, your a, Rev A0 silicon into it because, you know, you don't want to blow up your babies and you want to make sure that the PDN can't be blamed for anything. As the power engineer, you want to make sure that you are blameless and nobody ever calls you up and goes, hey, I see something funny happening. And so this, these kinds of devices allow you to test that. But to do that, you also have to have an adapter because the part is a 4,000 pin BGA and you have to create an adapter. So there's an adapter that's designed for this and it has some connectors on it. But the, the thing that was kind of challenging is, well, I, frankly, I didn't want to spend another, you know, however many, you know, $10,000 or whatever on two of these load slammers in parallel, because these are, these are meant to be transient devices. They're not meant to be steady state load. Uh, so they, they have very low average power capability. And so you want some average power. And I think, couple of pictures in Arian's uh, Twitter thread. They have um, they have this uh, adapter that has a bunch of extra connectors on it. And so I made some adapters to go from that using literally sheets of copper and some phenolic. I got some from McMaster car and some 3M VHB and cut all those up and bolted uh, four gauge battery cables to them, to our electronic loads to provide the, the DC load of you know, 300 and some amps, uh, and then have the load slammer provide the 300 amp step load on top of that. So, Eric, I'm going to interject. When you do these 300 amp step loads, you're actually seeing the cables bounce, right? <laughs> oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, and, so and, and these are these are car battery cables that we're seeing in that yeah. picture. Yeah, so they're they're actually from a car audio company. They they're new concepts, K N U K O N T E P Z or something. That they have the most hilarious spelling ever. <laughs> but it's these are car audio enthusiasts, and they have they just happen to have the like most reasonably priced uh, ultra high flex high strand count four gauge battery cables uh, that I've ever been able to find. So they and they're really they're good quality. Uh, but yeah, even without the load slammer doing its crazy fast transients, just the 
you know, the static chroma load we have, I can make the cables jump visibly. <laughs> and yeah, they, I mean, I they literally on. hop, they, they like bump on the bench. Oh, okay. So I, what makes them hop? What, what is that? The transient magnetic field. Yeah, it's a magnetic field effect. Each other. Wow. Either it attracts or opposes each other, depending on, you know, what you're, what you're doing. Wow. And the, and so the, the, and the load slammer, it should be said is, this is just, to be clear, it is the, has replaced the Tofino on these select boards. Yep. So we have got, and this is not stocking So these boards are going to be, nope. we've got the two load slammer boards. They will always be load slammer boards. And if we blow those up, we don't have a load slammer. And similarly, we don't have a way of putting a load slammer on a, on a Tofino board. So these are, are totally uh, same board design, but with a different part in them. Yeah, they're yeah, purpose exactly. built for this. And so we we get the boards, Eric. You start doing your tuning, which seemed like it was just going like pretty well straight out of the chute. Things were going pretty smoothly, it seemed. Yeah. So Renaissance, like a lot of companies, they have simulation models, and the the tool we use is called Simplus, and it's a it's a it's basically a way of approximating a real spice simulation that's still pretty accurate and is super fast for things like switch power supplies. And so I had initial tuning parameters from that uh, simulation uh, from running on my computer. So that is what allowed me to get basically a head start to say, okay, this is kind of where I want to start and it'll at least be somewhat stable and then we'll go from there. And then it was just going through that, tuning guide and sitting there and blasting at a bunch. We did run into one quirk where we kept seeing things that weren't real, which was interesting. And you were able to do this completely parallelized. You've got basically one of these load slammer boards. You've gone off to do this. And then, Arian, you had taken, I think, you didn't have an actual Tofino on that first board we were using, right? That was also still a load slammer board. No, it was the other load slammer board. So he and Matt were working on the other one getting the management network stuff running. Getting the, yeah, so the audience, we're talking about that, and, and then we, uh, in terms of all the things we needed to do, all the other things on this, um, we've obviously got the, the, the main event, but we now got Eric is off tuning and, and getting ready for what will be the main event. Um, what were some of the other things we had to go do to bring this thing up? Yeah, so Aaron and I worked on, uh, so there's an FPGA that controls most of the uh, act that is actively controlling most of the pieces on this board that actively controls the enables and resets on most of the parts. Uh, the intent here is that we can more or less re reboot all pieces of software without the ASIC losing uh, the ability to continue switching packets. We can't update the ASIC, so no switching table updates can happen for a short for a very brief period of time. But at least the ASIC can continue switching packets, which is kind of important. Um, so yeah, Aaron and I were working on on RTL for the for the FPGA to to be able to properly sequence the power rails that are uh, enabling Tofino, as well as some of the power rails for there's a there's a secondary switch ASIC on this board that provides our management network, um, and there's a clock generator and a bunch of auxiliary pieces that need to work. So all, all those had to be turned on and configured properly before we could even start to power on an actual Tofino ASIC. Uh, so we were working on that in parallel, and then uh, as soon as that board was freed up, um, Matt then was able to take over and use that for some work on the uh, the secondary switch ASIC that he has been working on for the past months. 
Well, and before Matt arrived, and in, in the uh, as we are bringing, I mean, we got to get to how the a, oh, yeah, a, Matt arrived the second week, so we were right. already a week in at that point. That's, we, that's we, right. we were already a week in, and I, th- I feel we have to talk about South Zero versus South One versus South Two, and the the how Tommel actually resulted in us depopping a bunch of components. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, so. <laughs> We are trying to configure the so there's a there's a there's a pretty fancy clock generator on this board that um, given an appropriate uh, system crystal and then a high very high precision oscillator will generate the required frequencies for all the components within you know jitter specifications. Um, there's potentially all these uh, these these qualifications that you might want to hit for use, for example, in 5G networks or in, if you're part of a 5G radio network or or other applications um, where you have to meet these particular jitter properties. And so we have a we have this this very nice part that will more or less let us program time however we need. We can arbitrarily put things in the same time domain or in, in a separate time domain, meaning that clocks are guaranteed to be fixed in like in phase with each other or not. They can drift separate from each other. Um, it's, it's a very nice programmable part, but it needs to be programmed over I squared C. And it was pretty much the first thing we needed after power was online and aboard. And so we, we are here desperately trying to connect to this part. And for some reason, we can't find it on the bus. And we keep twiddling different things like did we get the address wrong we're, we're, we're scanning the bus we're looking <laughs> we're looking at the schematic trying to piece some things together and ultimately it, we realized that uh uh i think we got the silk screen wrong and so we're, we're plugged into the wrong bus with the wrong header and the, and the part was out on a different bus so it was never going to answer to us and uh and and so we're, we're but we've gone at that point we've gone through and desoldered most of the components on the bus because we were wondering if maybe the bus was because the i think the bus was stuck in in, in reset or the bus was being pulled on the, well, that one that one had the uh the lpc on it or the yeah the um the lattice part on there and it was uh like weak pull downs which was surprising Oh, yeah, the FPGA was attached to that, and the FPGA in default, in its default state, in its unconfigured state, will pull down on the on the uh, on the lines, and so the I squared C bus was being held in, um, uh, basically being stuck. And but that was the that was the wrong I squared C bus. It was because we were looking at the wrong thing, and so we started depopping most parts. We had some resistors in line with most parts that we could so we could decouple devices from the bus, except for the FPGA and, and one other device. And so here we are doing all this surgery, and and then at some point we step back and we realize like oh we've been operating on the wrong bus altogether. And so, hey, like lo and behold, we're connecting the right bus, and the the clock generator <laughs> wakes up and and is it can be configured. So we spent a couple hours puzzling on that one, but yeah. And so I guess I didn't realize that the artwork was also wrong because I was fixated on the fact that the that hubris was talking to the wrong bus. Oh yeah, that, that, so that, that was the ultimate. I think the art, the artwork may have been wrong, but the ultimate, yeah, the ultimate problem was we have this configuration that will that allow us to basically specify a device tree for our in our embedded operating system, and the way that that file is ingested, uh, the order in which these devices exist uh, changes. Like, what were the details? Oh there? God, yeah, yeah. Oh, Matt, you want to talk about this one? Oh can, God. Yeah, this was a little bit before my time, but I, I remember seeing the aftermath. So basically, the device is configured where you say, like, here are all of the different devices on the I2C bus. Here are their addresses. Here are what they are, and so on. 
Um, and then elsewhere in the code, you say, okay, I want to talk to device number one in that list using an index. And the problem was that right, the right, list we don't, was we don't, being we don't sorted. By name. Yeah. yeah. And so the list of devices was being sorted. And so device number one in that list ended up being some random other device because at some point in the process, it was stored in a sorted data structure uh, and then spat back out in a different order. I think that's that's the quick version. Does that sound right? The, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the tables. And Adam, do you, how much do you deal with Tommel? Do you deal, you deal with Tommel in... I, I'm basically not at all. I kind of avoid it. Yeah, I, yeah, this is probably a good way to live. I, <laughs> good I mean, man, I don't good know. man. I, no, I don't know. I mean, I use JSON, which which is not a better way to live. It's just a different way to live. It's a different way to live. All of these things are. I've got like strengths and weaknesses. Definitely, Tomo of Tomo among them. One of the things that is really frustrating about Tomo is that the table order is not stable. So you have something that looks ordered in a file. But then it will it, the action it will go through a B tree and it will actually be in alphabetical order. But, um, but is this is this for does this have to do with the, the like quote unquote specification of this of this file format or is it simply the implementation of the parser that we're using? Uh, it is it's the specification, sadly, and there's an issue oh, which we'll, just, we'll link to. Okay. Oh, no, this has caused us no end of grief. It caused Tomlin no end of grief. Matt, there was a very funny thing that that you had quoted, which. Uh, I don't know where you found it, but a table comparing Toml to other uh, other file formats, and one of them was uh, comparing it to an any file, and uh, it was like one of these like you know yes no kind of uh, strength weakness kind of table, and as it's comparing Toml to like something like an any file, which is kind of what Toml's modeled themselves off, one of the the columns in the table was strongly typed. And if you were yes strongly typed, that was considered to be a negative. That's red. And, if, <laughs> and if, if you are not strongly typed, that's positive. And Matt had the very funny line of like, "Did in any file actually write this table?" I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, that was a frustrating issue. I feel it's, that has that issue has bit us many many times with Tomel. I feel like Matt didn't it bite us like the, I felt like it bit us on the spy stuff as well, not that long afterwards. I think it did, that sounds right. I, I just know that the fix was just to switch to a custom uh, deparser that was called ordered Toml, which just maintained ordered lists for all of these lists of dictionaries and so on. Yes, that was when Cliff hit the last straw. Cliff is like, forget it, yes. we're never doing this again. And I'm actually changing us over to my own thing called ordered Toml, just like Toml, except tables are ordered at the end. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so yeah, we we deep. And Nathaniel, what you guys end up deep hopping on that? Did you you able to get you were able to get it all back on? Obviously, yeah. Sorry. Nothing was nothing was too bad. I mean, we took some series resistors out, and we might have taken a small, you know, like four or eight bin chip off. Um, I think we took one of the te temperature sensors off that we maybe didn't really need, um, as, at least on a bring up board, and you know. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like massively destructive. But and, we and were just running out of things to take off. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't, it, but yeah, we did, we did get to a spot where it was like, well, it's the BGA and the processor, and there's not much we can do about, you know, <laughs> either of those two things. So, so, so anyone listening, including my future self, anytime you do a new board and you don't know what the I2C bus is actually going to end up with, make sure that you put series resistors between the bus and every device so that you can easily depop the device from the bus in case something is misbehaving. I, yes, I 
I did want to hop back and just tell a funny story about the first week of Bring Up, which was like all power all the time, including our hotel room because our hotel room <laughs> lost power. Right. right. And so we, uh, we, you know, a number of us were staying at a local hotel and the hotel had like a main bus fault. And so, you know, on day two or something, we had to like uh, leave work and go grab our stuff and move to a different hotel. Yeah. And, and to be clear, and the hotel you did say... not have power yeah. again the rest of the week. Right. When you say lost power, this is not like the power like was out for like an hour or two hours. This is like the hotel no longer has the capacity to power itself. Right. It was like yeah. a week. They got one of the little like yellow like uh, earthquake disaster stickers because the fire yeah. department told them to kick the people out. So Yeah, I, I tweeted that one. <laughs> I tweet very little, but I tweeted that one. It's a restricted yeah. use sign that says, yeah, this is not safe to be habiting, you know, to be to be in. So, yeah, that's not good. The thing that blew up is drastically bad to have blow up. It's called a bus duct. And it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty horrible to have one of those go if you're having a real bad day. So yeah, even, I, even when we weren't at work, we were still dealing with power issues. Right, and I'm not sure if that was a good omen or a bad omen, but um, that was that, right. That was, I totally forgot about that, Nathaniel. So you got, you all had to move to a different hotel in in all of this, which was very disruptive. Um, so then the we are doing all power all the time, as you say. Um, that first week went pretty smooth, and now we're. I I, I don't think there was anything that was really. I mean, I think things again we were kind of where we wanted to be going into week two. And now uh, a couple of things were happening. One, we were getting ready to actually, to actually bring this up on the actual Tofino. So um, Eric, do you want to describe kind of what you had done with the tuning? And, and I mean, your confidence was growing that we could actually not blow this thing up. Yeah. So we, we, uh, I kept, I kept abusing it in different ways, trying to see if, see if it would blow up and it, it seemed to be behaving and i there was some there was some noise that was happening in the uh in the load slammer because of some some quirk that i still haven't figured out but um basically we were seeing uh fake overshoot or undershoot uh, that was not actually there and so that that took a couple of days to uh to convince myself i knew what was going on and the the nasty thing about this is like you can't just measure this with a normal scope probe because ground changes when you pump 500 amps through it. Because even your ground planes, you know, this is a 20 layer board and we have probably 12 layers of ground, 12 or 14 layers of ground. I mean, it's just, it's stupid how many ground planes we have. But even that, like, will change by, you know, 10 millivolts at 500 amps. And 10 millivolts doesn't sound like much, but when your margin, you know, and your tire tolerance is like, 30 to 40 millivolts, 10 millivolts is a big margin. And so, so, so like, hey, Eric, why is ground changing? What's causing Because you have, you have current flowing through it. So, Yeah, these are the same electrical magnetic properties. These fields change and therefore... It's not even fields, it's just straight resistance. I mean, ground is a wire, right? Ah, that's so true. Yeah, this is resistance. Like, let's say a milliohm of, of resistance, right? Which is pretty low. You pass 500 amps through it, that's 500 millivolts of drop you'll get <laughs> right. across it. So your your ground planes have to be in the micro ohm range, and the PDN actually is in the range of like two hundred micro ohms. Um, but two hundred uh, micro ohms. Sorry, I'm just yeah. um, okay. Two hundred micro ohms up to like you know some megahertz. 
Wow. To be able to so, meet so Eric, Eric, do you what is it? What is it? How much power are we resistive power are we burning in just the copper layers to the supply 500 amps? It's something like 40 watts. Yeah, it's somewhere around 40 or 50 watts. Or so there's 40 like or 50 watts dissipated through the PCB just because of the resistance of the copper as you deliver power from the, the, the power feds through the ASIC. Wow. And the and the resistant properties of that material that's that we're we're in the domain of material science with that. Yeah, is that just right? the resistance of copper. Of like copper. You're just, okay. You're you're running into fundamental limits of okay. And that's that's why these chips all implement remote sense where you they remotely sense both the power and the ground. So they measure the voltage differential at the load with all these high power high power controllers and these high power chips. And so because you can't use a normal you know, scope probe for this, you have to use a differential probe, but many, many differential probes are limited in their ability to measure with low noise. And again, when you have, you know, tens of millivolts of margin, noise is important. And so is DC offset and all these other things. And there's like one differential scope probe that apparently can do this. And I didn't have it at the time, <laughs> um, you know, because, we're a startup, and I don't have you know a million dollars of tech <laughs> right, lying exactly. around that we've built up over the last two decades. So it's uh, <laughs> so it's you know it was challenging, but it's like okay, I measure the measure the voltage drop, and I measure the how much the voltage changes on the scope probes when I do different you know DC load levels to see how much ground bounce I have, and you know I, I figured out that okay, yes, I'm seeing this and it's fake, and you know I don't have to worry about it, and so then I can trust the results, ignoring these couple little quirks which are also not physically possible. So it's not like I was just trying to ignore something that was, you know, not pleasant. The, the quirks we were seeing were not physically possible. So, and were they not physically, how are they not physically possible? It's like the, so usually when you have a load step, like meaning load is added, your voltage drops. But in this case, the voltage was rising on a load step and it was dropping on a load release. And that's not what happens. <laughs> right. And and the no, the way we prove this to ourselves is we we also dead shorted the inputs to this thing, uh, to the device that was actually measuring this. Okay. And even when it's measuring ground from both inputs, it saw the same spikes. And so there must have been some sort of either external coupling mechanism because of where we had to run cables on the on the load, you know, near the device. And you can see it's fairly crowded. So it was either something like that where there was some sort of magnetic field coupling in there or something, or there was just, you know, some other quirk that we just didn't understand. But basically it was measuring noise and we proved to ourselves that yes, it was noise and we can ignore it safely. And then once that, once that was settled, which took a while uh, for me to convince myself of that, uh, it, you know, it was basically, okay, you have the main rail, you have a few aux rails, which are, you know, only, 80 amps or 100 amps or something. Else. <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're little piddly ones. Yeah, these little small rails that you know only take like three 90, 90 amp multi-phase controllers. Um, and so once once we kind of once I kind of worked through all those, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm reasonably happy with all these results. And there's a nice spreadsheet that uh, that until it provided about the like the the rail tolerances and things, and I filled that out and I checked every vid so every voltage that it could run at made sure they were all happy and none of them were weird or anything and, and it's like okay well 
And Eric, I think it was about like one of the, I remember one of the metaphors you had for this is like you have to understand this is like jumping out of a plane and landing on a on a, on a tightrope uh, that is made of like dental floss. I mean, that is like how how and I just feel like as if I'm like okay, I like wow, this is this is going to be um, definitely holding our breath for that and. And the the way these things, you, you know, you don't necessarily pick the timing of some of the stuff. And um, <laughs> Steve, do you want to talk about the fact that we had a potential investor who had a, a previously scheduled time to come visit us while we were going to be powering this thing on for the first time? Mitch, uh yeah, I mean, we were we were at our office. This was. Uh, as we were starting to get back to where uh, one might have folks in a well-ventilated office. And uh, so had a prospective investor up here having a meeting with them. And uh, it was when we had the hardware engineering team in town to do bring up on the switch to which, you know, we had not yet gotten to a happy place. Uh, And (laughs) in the midst of the meeting, all of a sudden, all the white lab coats, abruptly kind of got up and huddled around the board and with like furrowed brows and were, you know, kind of turning and talking to each other in muffled voices and which made it impossible for me to do anything other than crane my neck the entire time, which made the rest of the meeting very awkward. Uh, After the fact, of course, it was uh, revealed that that was a planned event from the engineering team to, uh, to, to prank us as we were sitting over there talking to said investor. Uh, but well, maybe... because come on, this is the birth of it. Like this is the birth of a little machine over here. It's kind of rude to invite the outsiders. Like, <laughs> I mean, fair. Like, it's a well, family well event. Yeah, right. very, very well deserved. I mean, I have all the respect in the world for the prank. Uh, it didn't make the the uh, the moment any uh, less uncomfortable for all involved. But yeah. Well, and in particular for Steve, I have to say that, like, I was just like, look, like, whatever's happening over there is happening over there. We're going to have this conversation. And then uh, there'll be plenty of time to weep tonight. I don't need to weep right now. Steve is like trying to read body language. I'm like, no, no, don't. What are you doing? Just like, <laughs> anyway, it, definitely, uh, it was a very effective prank. And I mean, the good news is that the, uh, I mean, Eric, you, I'm sure you were holding your breath, but I mean, stuck the landing when we, when we powered it up. Yeah, it was no terrifying. It, I, I, I don't know how many, how many more hairs I lost off my head that day, but that's why, that's why I shaved my head. So I don't For the listeners, Eric is bald. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I'm not totally shaved. bald. I shaved my head, but I, I accept the fact that I'm going bald. <laughs> I own it. So, but yeah, it was it was one of those like, oh man, I hope they don't regret hiring me. I like, hope this works. Nah, power up was really uneventful because we we, we put the heat sink on and yeah, the heat sink was. It was like, all right, we're, we're plugging in this board. We have yeah. we have tested the power up sequence. We know that the rails are powering up in the right order. You know, all the timing is correct. Hey, can we just talk about the heat sink for a second? Yeah, and that thing's heat... like eight pounds. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's, it's an entire, the whole bottom of that thing is a vapor chamber. So, like, if, if people know, like, a, a, a normal heat sink, you'll see those copper pipes coming up. And those are, 
those are um, heat pipes and they have like water usually in them and then the water evaporates and it moves to somewhere else and then it condenses and flows back to the heat source and everything. The entire bottom plate of that heat sink is one giant vapor chamber. And which is the only way in hell you can move that much heat over that big of a space in any effective manner. And it's got to be, what is it? I mean, I, I, it's, it, not nine, ten inches. Not, sorry to use Imperial here, but I mean, it's or more. Um, uh, it's well, so like if, you, if you're looking at the, wide. Yeah, if you're looking at the pictures on the board, if you look at where, the, like, some of these pictures of the adapter that I showed in the thread that we're, we were talking about earlier, there's a there's an outline there, like a large rectangle around this whole thing. That's the outline of the heatsink. This thing is almost as wide as the board is wide, and it is about an inch and a half tall, and. Uh, and we had one of our Adam. Did you have any insight into the moment arm crisis? <laughs> one of the like the moment like, arm crisis. Yeah, exactly. So, no. they, so one of the early concerns what we got a, a very uh, a partner doing uh, Mechie work for us, very good partner, and they had one of their concerns was the heat sink was going to be so large and so heavy that you've got the 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 moment arm, which is to say the, the, the mechanically. The, the force that would be necessary at the very edge of the heatsink to crack the PCB would be scarily slight. And we you get very nervous about the thing actually. Well, not crack the PCB, crack the die of the chip. The, crack so, the die, because, right. because in, in, okay, right. in transport, the, 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 the heatsink might vibrate, you know, as it, as it, is, as it undergoes, like as, as a thing tra- is transported. And those vibrations will cause the the out the far outsides of the of the heatsink to potentially rock back and forth, ever so slightly. But but this is an exposed die device. There's no heat spreader. There's no protection whatsoever. And so if if you apply just enough force on that little on the edge of those little dies, then you might crack them off. And therefore, you know, who knows what happens then? And fortunately, we ch- this is uh, changing the heatsink from copper to aluminum, right? Arian, that was like the big win in terms of being able to pull it in a little bit. Have you? So the, the 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 biggest so the thing we at some point settled on initially we weren't looking for a vapor chamber design because it was uh, slightly more complicated, slightly more expensive, and uh, lead times were longer on that because it's just a, a more involved manufacturing process. But we we did eventually settle on a on a vapor chamber, and then uh, what we could do. If I, this is a while ago, but uh, basically the fins are not co- the fins are aluminum, so we're using copper a copper base with with a, with a vapor chamber and an aluminum fins, and the fins only heat travels only so far into those fins, and basically initially the design was much was taller than it needed to be. Basically, simulation showed that the amount of heat that would reach the, t- the very tip of the fins was rather minimal, so we could easily shave off. I don't know. I would say ten millimeters or fifteen millimeters of the fins at the top, like from the top, basically, and that alone uh, cost a significant reduction in weight, something like four hundred grams, I think. Um, so that was that. That brought us down into the sort of two and a half kilogram range, which was where the mechanical engineers were like, "Okay, this is we're we're, we're okay with two and a half kilograms. We can we can sufficiently support the heatsink on both sides to make sure that it won't ever rock far enough that it will cause." enough force on the on the die to be a problem but it is a big heat sink it's a very big heat sink it's a very chunky boy um 
And and soon your your graphics card coming to your PC near you will have equally large heat sinks. The next generation yeah. of GPUs are are dissipating. Uh, about, like TDPs are in the same ballpark, and there's a real knee in the curve. Uh, once you go past sort of 350 watts, things become that much more difficult to cool. You need you need more air velocity, etc., and and so everything becomes much more difficult. So uh, it will be interesting to see what future GPUs, high end GPUs, will look like because it, those are going to be very beefy pieces of of uh, of metal too. Yeah, and of course we're all air cooled, so that's the other the, the other kind of factor here that you can. But I would expect most GPUs. Oh, I actually shouldn't say that. I'm sure gamers are all water cooled now. Um, so we get this thing. Um, we you get it uh flip the switch and then eric are you pretty happy with what are you monitoring when you let current flow through that thing for the first time what do you what were you monitoring to ascertain whether we had achieved success or not so at this point it was mostly just making sure the voltage was right versus the, the vid of the part we were using got it yeah okay uh, i wasn't i wasn't really concerned about the load part of it anymore because you know, I was watching the input power and the, the load monitor on the, the Renaissance chip, and it wasn't like there wasn't that much load coming from it because stuff was a lot of stuff was still in reset. Uh, but most of the concerns at that point was, okay, is the heatsink working? <laughs> is it getting warm? Because <laughs> if it's not, then our chip is going to self-immolate and desolder. So. <laughs> Watching and making sure, you know, it's in capped on tape to, you know, because the whole heatsink is like nickel plated or whatever. So it's it's very shiny and it doesn't work well with, uh, with thermal cameras, but you put some capped on on it and it gets it reasonable enough that you can see if it's if it's getting toasty. Hmm. So we had some capped on on it and it, uh, otherwise, if you take a thermal camera and point it at a really shiny surface like metal, you'll just see the reflection of whatever it's pointed at. Oh, I don't think I didn't realize that. So we, okay, yeah, I, just, I think I missed the fact that you've done that for the thermal imaging. And yeah, uh, I think Aaron put a picture of the heatsink with the Kapton on it in reply yeah. to the Twitter Space thread. Yeah, and it's pinned in in this if it shows up for you. Although it doesn't seem yeah, to show up for everybody. Yeah, it shows up for me. But yeah, the so we put some Kapton on that, and that's that's a close enough approximation that we it at least gives you some reasonable answer. Assertion of the, uh, the the temperature of the heat sink, and once we once I saw that that was like getting a little warm in the middle, and you know, warm meaning like two or three degrees above ambient, because the heat sink's a beast. And at this point, there's no like screaming fans blowing at this thing. It's like some little puny desk fan that's propped up in the background. Ah, that um, but... that puny desk fan is actually quite a bit of yeah, exactly. But yeah, they've been to doing the, like, pretty well. Levitating compared to the self-levitating <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, stacked yeah. fans that'll run, you know, as fast as a jet engine. Yeah, no, no. They're yeah, but they're like nine-inch fans. The diameter of those yeah, fans yeah, are they're, great. It is. It's a legit diameter. Um, but so, and then is this where you? Uh, is this two to three degrees above ambient? Is this what you call puppy dog warm? I know you you refer to puppy dog oh, warm. No. I haven't figured yeah. out what puppy dog warm is yet. I, I just it know that it wasn't even puppy dog warm at that point. But once we once we let the thing out of reset, then it started getting like puppy dog warm, which is you know like a few a few more degrees above ambient. It's it's basically like puppy dog warm to me is like if you pet a dog that has you know not super thick hair, super long hair, you know like a puppy. 
if you pet a puppy, you feel kind of that general, like, cozy, comforting warmth from the dog. That's puppy dog warm. <laughs> All right. So, I feel, I feel like a I great ne- term of art here. Yeah, when I feel like I never got the – all I got from Eric is like, that's puppy dog warm. That's not puppy dog warm. This is not yet puppy dog warm. So I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what exactly puppy dog warm is. Do you need him to put it in cat terms for you, Brian? Yeah, it's quite literal. It's, it's, uh, it's, happy, it's happy kitty warm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, if you could just convert it to cat for me, that would be a lot easier. Um, oh, this is this is black cat in a window in the sun for warm. This is you know. <laughs> there you go. Um, so we so the, we, we like what this part is doing. Um, and now maybe it's actually a good time to kind of like we've we, we got that working. Maybe Matt, you want to talk about what you were doing because this is not actually one switch; it's actually two. And you were working on getting the other switch up during this time. You want to talk about some of the things that you've done with that and some of the things you've found? Yeah, definitely. So the, like Brian said, the uh, main sidecar, the switchboard, actually has a second lesser network switch on there, uh, where by lesser network switch, I mean a 54-port, 80 gigabits of switching <laughs> fabric switch. Um, so like much heftier than anything you would use in a consumer device. Um, and the purpose of this switch is to run what's called the management network, which is the network of all of the service processors, which are equivalent to baseboard management controllers. So this is very low level. It comes out of reset um, kind of before the main switch, and its job is to shuffle packets around. And it needs to be pretty dumb. Like, all we really need is for packets to go in and go out and some amount of VLANs to kind of tune where they go. Uh, but you can't and, buy and Matt, a sorry to interrupt. Board. Yeah. Matt, sorry to interject, but just to tie it together for other folks who have listened, uh, these service processors are where we're running Hubris, just to, to complete the picture uh, a little bit. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so it turns out that you can't buy a dumb 54-port 80-gigabit switch. Like, no one sells that because that's a really weird thing to want. Um, and so instead, you get to buy a very fancy, like, this is meant for your light home network or light server rack switches um, with you know, 800 page data sheets and 800,000 line SDKs to work with. Uh, and so bringing that up was very exciting because the data sheet, despite being 800 pages long, doesn't actually tell you everything you need to do to bring it <laughs> up. Um, and so there was a lot of reverse engineering the SDK and kind of tracing through it to see what it's writing and looking at all of the secret bonus registers that exist in the SDK, but not in the data sheet. Uh, to get this thing actually up and running, and this is uh, this is the the, the VSC seventy four forty eight is the, the um is the, is the chip here, and I would say the vendor here is like many of ours, which is like not unfriendly, but also made it very clear that we are not on the wet, their well trodden path. <laughs> They're just like, <laughs> yeah, what I, what is this SDK? Is this some like that they expect you to have like be running mm-hmm. Linux somewhere? Yeah, so the actually, chip is yes. interesting because yes. it is a. It is a switch um, in that it's got a bunch of switching fabric, but it is also a MIPS processor in there. Uh, and so you can strap some RAM and flash to this switch and boot up Linux uh, running on the same <laughs> chip as the switch. Wow. Uh, which is yeah, kind of awesome. their happy path. Like that's kind of what they expect you to do. That's what their dev kit does. That's kind of the most common use for this chip. That's right. And so th- this is and this is a MIPS core. Adam, if you're wondering where we had MIPS in the product, it's this MIPS core that we are... Not that we actually can't use because it's not attached to any memory. Yeah, we didn't attach the D64 or anything on there. No. (laughs) 
but but the, but the result is that uh, we've now been told after Matt and I have asked several rounds of questions about hey how is this supposed to work or how like we're not seeing X or Y happening they've now told us like hey, listen you need to use the SDK or not bother us with any questions at this point so fortunately we've made good progress and we're through Matt has made good progress and we're through I think arguably the critical the critical sections and we were probably able to do it from this end on our own but yeah we've been it's definitely it, been an adventure it was definitely an adventure and uh, matt you had gotten us a, a a dev a dev board for this thing and i'm used to these dev boards being i don't know you know like something you can hold in one hand and your dev board of course it's a 54 port switch i mean it's a huge thing that you've got to go develop oh yeah thing. it's like like one foot by two foot and is um, shielded on both sides by like quarter inch acrylic plates uh, it is a yeah, it's more or less a, a a a translucent rack mountable thing it's 19 <laughs> inches wide exactly it, it actually could go into a rack i think if you were to put mounting ears on it and so matt and you had basically before we brought the stuff up you had managed to talk that thing directly via spy from a from hubris running on uh, on I think, the gimlet right yeah exactly because we don't want to be using the internal emits processor uh, you can strap pins and cause it to boot up uh, without that processor running and then it acts as a spy device and so we had a separate microcontroller uh, that was talking to it over spy and just writing you know hundreds of registers on startup to bring the switch up with a mix of documented and undocumented settings. Like some of the surveys in particular, the things which actually send stuff down the line are just blobs of cryptic configuration that they don't really tell you what they do. And is is this where the hidden, the, the hidden 8051 was not, or the knots of hidden 8051 was not in this part? Or was it this one have 8051s? I mean, I'm sure there are 8051s everywhere. Why am I? The secret 8051s are in the FIs, which are a separate chip, um, but it goes through this chip to talk to the FIs. So yeah, one of the things we discovered is that the SDK includes uh, sets of code to configure very specific FI chips. Like if you have this FI, you need to apply a patch, which is this array of binary numbers uh, to the 8051 core running inside the FI, because of course that's a thing. And then, so Matt, somewhere along the line, I was trying to remember where it was in that week. You were, so you, we've got the 7448, then you've got these additional files that you need to go talk to. And if I recall correctly, you could t you were able to speak to one of the 8552s, but not the other. Is Am I remembering that right? Uh, I'm not sure. That, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like uh, what I remember. This, this is the thing that ended up being, yet again, the slew rate. Oh, yes. So that was, um, yeah, we could talk to one of the FIs that was configured one way, but one of the other FIs, which we configured through a different interface, was refusing to talk. Um, and I, I'm sure Brian remembers this because I worked on this for an entire day. I told Brian I was going to go home, and I'm sure that I would solve it first thing the next morning. Uh, and sure enough, you know, I go home and relaxing in the hotel room, I think to myself, well, we've already had two issues where the microcontroller slew rate on pins has caused things not to work. Uh, where you get to pick. So when you're configuring a microcontroller pin, uh, you can say, I would like this pin to be slow or medium or fast or very fast. And of course, everyone picks very fast because like, why would you pick anything but the fastest possible slew rate? Um, I can hear all of the other like electrical and analog engineers wincing in the background here. Um, and so sure enough, these pins were configured as very fast. And if I came in the next morning, the first thing I did was I changed them to slow 
and the chip immediately came up uh, and Brian came in and I told him it was working now. And he looked at me like, what did you do? Well, and in particular, because you just been so like, well, this doesn't work, but I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to come in. I'm going to fix it. I'm like, wow, okay. All right. Well, that sounds like, that's a good plan, I guess. <laughs> that sounds like you know what's going on. <laughs> then uh, that was, that was great. I was very impressed. I also have to say, I, the, you've been bit by this issue a couple of times. I got bit by this issue on the slew raid. So the, Adam, have you been, did you get, did you get any? The, no, I'm not read into this one at all. So, is, 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 so when you configure these GPIO pins, just as Matt says, you've got these, the, the, what you are configuring is how quickly it rises or how quickly it falls. And as Matt says, it's like your options go from very fast to slow. And so anyone, you're writing software, you're like, obviously, got it. yes, I want very fast, of course. Like, why would I want the slow one? It's like, well, you want the slow one because if you, if you raise the, the level very, very quickly, you are getting, you are much more likely to get signal bounce. You, or rather, you have to pay attention to how things are terminated because the, the signal now is this like abrupt sharp edge and it's likely to bounce off when it it's it hits an impedance mismatch and and i'm doubly used correct me for a while i'm sure this is like i'm butchering this explanation but you'll get this reflection back and when you're talking over like spy so you start literally hearing yourself if you're talking over spy and as a software engineer this makes you want to cry because you see like rampant data corruption but not total data corruption it's like i can see that like this thing is trying to do the right thing some of the time and then for reasons that i don't i but then it does the wrong thing a lot of the time and it can be really really frustrating yeah what you effectively get is you get this ringing behavior where it takes a while for the signal to settle uh, because you get these reflections that are basically rattling back and forth between all your parts, especially if you have a bus that has multiple drops and then there's a header that is unterminated. So it, all that stuff starts reflecting back uh, in all directions, effectively. So it will take a little bit of time to settle. And if your sample, if your part is either sampling at the wrong time or your your controller is sampling at the wrong time, then it might be sampling, you know, at the throttle of one of those one of those uh, those oscillating, uh, like as as it as it bounces, and yeah, you will read a zero or a one depending on where that is at that point. It's cruel. The other so, part about we, this is that yeah. uh, if, if you attach a logic analyzer, you'll be adding a little bit of capacitance to these lines, and that is often enough yeah. to make the problem go away. And that will, yeah, that might go make it go away because that will provide just enough termination effectively to make these rattles be a little bit less violent, and therefore they will settle quicker and and things will get happier. And so, Adam, it's funny because obviously we we yeah, have talked about setting, how do we how do we change the setting? Like what it's just. Matt, you're just literally changing a line of code. Oh yeah, yeah, from, line of code. from fast yeah. to slow. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's awesome. You can add yep. a capacitor. <laughs> I mean, it, it's basically setting a register in some, you know, in the processor somewhere that tells it what to do. And we would love to have different nomenclature for this. It would be great to go from like safe to dangerous. Would feels like people would not be using dangerous unless they knew what they were doing, but it goes from fast. It goes from slow to fast, and everyone picks fast, and you actually want to be like slow or medium. Um, you you, you want to be you, you, you want, want that rate. slow rate is as slow as you can get away. With. That's right. That is as slow as you can get away with is what you want, uh, and you want to default to be slow, not fast. Yeah, um, slow so slow rate works for like a forty megahertz spy connection, so it's not slow. It's just not the fastest possible. Right, right. 
But now, you were so through that week making really good progress, getting all – we had the P, a PLL failing the lock. I, I remember that issue. I, and I, I know that you got it resolved, but I don't know. What, the, what, what was the resolution on that one? I think that was just one of the like gazillion configuration registers <laughs> right. that you had to bring up exactly right in the right order. And what I ended up doing was compiling the SDK on my desktop. Uh, and replacing all of its register reads and writes with calls that would actually print what it was doing. Uh, oh, so that's awesome, the SDK, It would pretend to configure the chip on my desktop, and then I would just read through every register write and compare that against what I was running to see if it matched. And sure enough, it was you know one of them that was different, and that was the problem. Oh, man, that's funny. I didn't realize you'd done that. Yeah, well, that was great, and a, and a, a, a great find. Um, and then at the... So we are end up at the end of this two weeks... And Aryan, we are right on the cusp of being able to bring this thing. I know you really wanted to get this thing all the way up to talk PCIe at the end of those that, that two weeks, but it, we just we weren't quite there. We were super super close, but we weren't quite there. But I thought we were uh, we were ahead of where we wanted to be. I don't know, Nathaniel, what, what do you think? I, I think we need to talk about the load bearing dongle right at the end. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go ahead. So I mean, we we had you know over the course of this two weeks, uh, for some for whatever reason, we basically had two. FTDI dongles that we were using to program these uh, the FPGAs, and and we only had two, and one of them I had brought with me, um, and so you know as we got these boards in different places, we have you know people running these dongles back and forth because every time the board power cycles, we have to reload these these images, and so you know we're we're getting ready to pack up. And like I'm, I'm packing up my dongle, and then everybody's just looking at me like you're gonna shut the company down by taking right. the dongle home. Right. That dongle, the entire company is that is gonna be is in that dongle. And I think Aryan had already like I, I recall like running out to get Aryan before he left so we could yeah, get the I, second, I dong- think Arian, second dongle. Aryan had left, and I think he came back to drop <laughs> right. off an extra dongle. We, we the, the second load bearing dongle. That's right. Steve, did you drive me back to the office? Was what, what happened there? I know that we, or or I drove back to the office, maybe, or we all drove back to the office. Yeah, but uh, anyway, like for the listeners, we we had parts. We just hadn't had the time to solder more dongles together so that we could, you know, use them. Uh, this was all happening rather quickly, and those things quickly fall by the wayside. But yeah, we 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 now have sufficient dongles for the company. And so now we are going into, but I, I mean, I thought we were right where we wanted to be in terms of we, we had managed, I mean. I, well, we managed it, to not flame one of these boards and because right. we only had a couple. And so that would have been a real setback. So, hey, like, stuff's still working. No Magic Smoke has been released. So and, and the PDN is running. So that seems good, which was good. <laughs> And we're getting, I mean, we talked about the spy wiggles and Nathaniel's spy wiggles on the SP3 and how those initial spy wiggles were kind of that initial sign of life. And we've got something similar here, right, Arian, where we've got the Tofino is going to be loading its configuration from an attached EEPROM, and we're seeing that sign of life. Correct. So, well, so Nathaniel posted some pictures on the on the, th- on the thread, the, the space thread, uh, mentioning U35. U35 is a little spy EEPROM where... There's a bunch of parameters that the the IP in the Tofino ASIC needs in order to configure its PCI Express link, which will then, once PCI Express is up, you can then configure the rest of the ASIC. Everything goes over PCI Express. We missed up, messed up the footprint, so that was one. Nathaniel had to do some surgery there to to get us to uh, to get a part in place that we happen to have. Uh, 
but then getting that to program was a little bit of a like a little bit of a, a thing where there we run again into the problem of slew rate being too fast. So here I sit with at 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 a table on the last Friday of bring up uh, trying to frantically trying to get a an external programmer to work uh, programming one of these little EPROMs so that we can get these parameters in there, solder like get it to the board and then fire up this thing because without these parameters the PCI Express link is never going to come up. And uh, so we we get stumped again by this slew rate being too fast, bit errors happening, and like I could program this thing, you know, once out of like I could program some pages reliable, and then some pages would not be reliable. And so uh, after a day of work, I was uh, I was about to jump off the bridge almost. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 both Brian and Steve told, talked me off the ledge, and they were like, "You go home," and Brian was going to go and fix this over the weekend. Uh, which he ultimately got, but I think it co- even cost you still. Uh, oh no, it, 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 it definitely. Yeah, absolutely. No, I got I got nailed by this thing as well. So it, it definitely was. It was more painful than I thought it was going to be. But we got, we we got to the point where we could we could pro. And what we're doing is taking this this kind of binary payload from Intel that describes in a, a format that I don't, I don't think we've got any visibility into that format, right? All right, this is some it's little goober that's going to describe how it configures the the PCI links. And we uh, we got it programmed that that next week, and I definitely felt like it was like all right. I think you and I were both joking that we're taking like this little astronaut and kind of programming this little ROM, and then kind of like sending it off into the rocket to go. You know, the, the, this little tiny uh, EEPROM has got all the information that's going to be necessary for this fire-breathing monster that Eric has configured to yeah. actually work properly. Well, actually, so when we powered it on, I, I should, I should, what, what we first saw when we, after we had some, some, some headers so that we could look at the, the, the waveforms. But, uh, so as, as the device powered on and we, we let it go out of reset, the first thing we see is that, hey, it's starting to fetch. It's trying to read, to figure out what kind of EEPROM is there and then trying to read the, uh, the configuration. There was no configured configuration in the EEPROM, but at least the part was showing signs of life, like the clocks were running and it was it was doing stuff over spy. So that's where we that's where we left off probably Thursday. Um, and so we knew that the part at least had come out of reset and was doing something and it was way and, and it was up to us to deliver these these parameters through the spy ROM to bring them up to then, you know, get PCI Express to work. So yeah, that took us about two weeks to get to from boards in hand not knowing what to expect to powered up and, and, you know, ready to go and explore, get this part to work. And I felt like, I mean, obviously, you know, Nathaniel and Eric, I defer to, you know, Matt, I defer to your expertise, but I felt like that's about as smooth as that was going to, I mean, I felt like that was not going to be a lot faster than that. That was about uh, as smooth as it was going to get. I think it's like one way to gauge that, especially relative to Gimlet was, just our, our MCN process, which is just we, we it's almost like capturing our, our bugs and hardware and things that we need to fix um, for the next round. I was just looking in Gimlet, we created 42 uh, bugs, hardware bugs, and on Sidecar we have six. Yeah, um, <laughs> which just shows that we we really cleaned up our process a lot. Yeah, we did. I mean, and, and huge kudos to you, Arian, and to the rest of the team. I mean, we were definitely, we got better, which was great. I think that was very, very gratifying. And I thought that went, that went pretty smooth. And then, Arian, going into that next week, you, everyone kind of leaves Emeryville. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, I feel like everyone kind of, you know, leaves the, 
the, the you know, the, it, everyone comes out for the birth, you know, baby's yeah. alive, everyone leaves. And now it's, you know, Aryan is now left with this, you know, this three week old that we need to, like, to kind of like uh, begin to uh, get to the next stage, which is getting at the talk over PCI. So um, do you want to talk about the, 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 <laughs> I mean, the contraption, the, uh, the kind of, the, how would we get this thing to talk over PCI or, and your, your eBay score on that? Yeah. So uh, long story short, the, 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 or what I, what I referred to earlier, this thing is connected over PCI express through an external cable, but that is not a standard cable in any way. This is part of our, our custom cable backplane that we're developing for this rack. And so there's no off the shelf cables you can buy for this. And so we had some, uh, we basically cobbled together uh, uh, what 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 I loving to refer to as the contraption using some uh, some an adapter board that would let us break out the individual um, the individual conductors like the twin X conductors effectively into SMA cables so that we could rig up basically a uh, a cable that would go from the connector underneath the board to a uh, a, a regular uh, PCI Express slot on a on a on a consumer motherboard because we we had did not have the compute slot ready to be connected to this thing yet because we could not run enough software on that just yet, and so we needed a a, a, a more ready to go um, a more ready to go PCI Express host, and so we uh, put together a small motherboard with just a, an, an off the shelf AMD client part and a 5600X I think. Um, and we used a, uh, a PCI Express test card from the PCI Express SIG organization that you can use for link validation that happens to have SMA connectors and then or uh, SM, SMTP connectors, SMPT connectors. And we then jumped that through the through the uh, the, the the breakout board and then into the cable, the custom cable that goes underneath sidecar. Um, at this point, we have replaced that with a we have made a little adapter that will take our custom cable and pin out to a regular SIM slot so that you know, we don't need that anymore. Um, but as did, we were starting- Did you literally get this on eBay? No, so as we were working through this, we we were running into some, basically the link wouldn't come up. And so, okay, where do we start debugging this? Because now we're talking about a PCIe Gen 3 link, you know, eight gigatransfers per, uh, gigatransfers per second per lane and, and high speed clocks. And now you, now you need, serious measurement equipment to go and figure out what's wrong. Uh, fortunately, I, I, my, my bad eBay, like late at night, uh, test equipment buying habits uh, led me to hoard some of this stuff. And we happen to have a PCI Express analyzer and a PCI Express exerciser, an older model from LaCroix, but we happen to miss a crucial cable for this thing. And the cable, the cable is still current and LaCroix will not sell it to me, won't sell me a you know, used one of this. They, they, they tried to charge me seven grand for a new one, which was a little bit out of the question. Um, but it was, it so happened that we managed to score a, uh, a, one of these, one of these cards that goes with these devices that came with a cable for only 50, 1600 bucks. So we got the cable. Uh, so we bought the, the, the adapter card for the cable and then with the cable in hand that, which arrived like one or two days later, uh, um, we managed to get to uh, to figure to, to we, we, we figured out that at least the PCI Express lanes were connected correctly and the clock was co- uh, connected correctly because the exp- the analyzer um, or the exerciser could connect to this board 
Um, and, and this thing, and Arnie, did you drop in a photo of this thing into your Twitter thread? I mean, this thing is true Frankenstein. I mean, this is like you you got, you know, a, a third of it bought on eBay. I mean, the thing is like, this is, uh, and when it, it was not working, Arian, you had a very clear idea of what you thought was going wrong. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I have a picture, and I posted a picture at some point. But the problem is, if I close the Twitter app, I don't yeah, know no worries. Yeah, yeah, we'll, thing we'll, will we'll drop. get so Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, okay. I, I will post the picture later. But um, yes, because when we start, I started digging a little bit, and what I realized was that there's several different clocking modes for PCI Express, um, and we were assuming that both these systems could be independently clocked, which is a supported mode, but which is not the default mode. Most uh, most PCI Express configurations are what's called source clocks, which means that the root port will also, or the root system will also provide the source clock by which all the carts or, or, or PCI Express devices uh, are clocked. Uh, they will use that as their input to synchronize their certies um, directly. So there's no, there's no clock recovery going on. They basically just simply take that, that clock input there's a transfer function in order to determine how to how to phase you, how you need to change your phase relative to that clock, and then you start sampling bits. And then, when implemented correctly, that will cause the bits to be sampled correctly and the link to work. And, uh, and, this, and I, this is, could you just expand a little bit on what clock recovery is? Because so, this... so clock recovery is the process of uh, so a lot of these high speed serial links like PCI Express or SATA or uh, SAS or or uh, uh, Ethernet now too. Um, instead of sending a clock along uh, along with the data as a separate uh, as a separate signal, um, that at these really high data rates, that becomes a now you need to make sure that the clock and data stay in phase. To and and so that causes you know that that causes some challenges because um, you need you need to make you need to make sure that these uh, that the clock never uh, either leads or, or 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 trails your data, but is right there within that. Um, exact window where then the, so- the the sync is going to capture use that clock to capture the data. A link that, for example, does do this is um, uh, to some degree is HDMI, the work a clock is sent along, which is used for recovery of the of the of the sample point. Um, and so instead, PCI Express relies on what is uh, or can rely. If you're not using this this source clock mechanism, you can relu- re- uh, rely on clock recovery, which means that you're using the data stream to embed the clock. You're using certain character transitions in the data stream to happen, such that you can recover the clock. You're using certain si- symbols um, that have certain pa- bit patterns, effectively, that you then use to uh, to train a PLL so that you can re- recover the clock and then sample appropriately. But for like most client PCs that just have PCI Express slots in which you insert, you know, your graphics card or your networking card or whatever it is, any PCI Express card, assume more or less that these are source clock systems, and so the source, the the the, the AMD CPU or your Intel CPU will provide, or, or or the board itself will provide a clock to these cards, and the the cards, uh, the chips on these cards will affect will align them, themselves directly. If you don't. If you if you do not want to do that, you need to turn on a a. There's two different modes that you can use for PCI Express, where you can say, oh, both systems have an independent clock, and now the chips both need to recover these clocks. If you don't if you don't set that appropriately, the clock recovery the functionality of these of these uh, links will basically not be enabled. It will be bypassed, and now 
you need to, so, and then what, if, if that is not enabled, what you're then going to have is that your data is going to be out of sync. Um, the clocks it, are going to be out of sync between these two systems. And, and I, I mean, it, Arian, fair to say it's rather unusual to have a PCI device that's much larger than the host, <laughs> which is the case for Cyclops. Yeah, this, right? is not, this is not a regular, like normally a, a, a directly plugged in device, you know, this is not a problem. So the solution here was that we would we also had to send the clock through the external PCI Express cable to to Sidecar, which we had accounted for. the The, the cable included uh, a diff pair to do that. It's a, but the, we needed to configure the clock uh, the clock generator that I was talking about earlier in the, in the in the space to uh, basically send the, to generate the an appropriate PCI Express clock from the received clock that we got from the host. And, and once that was in space, you know, the, the, the link would come up. Um, the, the analyzer would, was not as picky in the analyzer that, or the, the, uh, the uh, exerciser rather that we attached to the system with that c- cable and the, and the cart that we bought from eBay. Uh, that one doesn't really care and it just sample, oversamples and then figures out where the clock needs to be and it will still work. Uh, but your AMD, your regular AMD client system will not. So once we, once I figured out that it, this was simply a clock being out of phase, the fix was fairly simple. Um, and you know, and once how, a, how did you figure that out? Was that just by kind of Gadonkin experiment and knowing? Uh, just I had a hunch that that might be the issue, and then start to look for some documentation. There's there's some good PCI Express reference material out there, including a clock chip, uh, uh, basically a data sheet for a clock chip from Renaissance, which describes these different scenarios oh. and why these different things work the way they work. And so, based on with that, armed with that, it was, I had a pretty good sense that this this wasn't it was a thing that we should explore and once we you know did that and figured it out it was it was pretty quick yeah i mean once you did that and that that was indeed the issue once you did that we were able to actually talk to it over pci which was that was an exciting moment yeah and that because that once you get that working it means that you can now get the one million plus line sdk from intel to go and configure the rest (laughs) of the chip because this chip is like, there's no way that you can do this without their help. Like, with, like there's there's so much logic and functionality going on in this thing that you, you 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 are solely beholden to what the 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 software that is provided for something like this. This would take a long time to rebuild if you did if you wanted to write that from scratch. Because right. you need so the, to know how these ASICs work, like it, really it, work. The route that we're taking that Matt was able to take with the VSC seventy four forty eight is just not practical. With Tofino, is, is well over t- over time. We 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 still want to probably write a lot of this stuff ourselves uh, because there's a lot in the SDK that because this 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 ASIC is designed for you know rent, uh, for for a variety of different rack switch configurations and, and and sort of rack switch deployments, and they are targeting Sonic, for example, as the operating system for this thing. Very clearly, and there's a lot of functionality in the SDK that we don't necessarily need. There's a lot of dynamic configuration ability that we are not going to be using, and so there might be some. Over time, we might start to cut some, cut out some of these pieces, and maybe only rely on the bottom, the lowest level C library that they provide to interact with the ASIC and then build up functionality over time on yep. top, because we still like you know, because it's like a pretty large chunk of C++ that is difficult to understand. So so while we're doing this, so we're, we kind of hit the end of January. We made great progress there. Maybe to back up a little bit and now talk about Gimlet, because Gimlet's now happening in parallel. And we have we got kind of, the, the, we've hit a couple of stumbling blocks with Gimlet 
in January that are proving pretty frustrating about the same time. Um, Nathaniel, do you want to talk about what we, I'm not sure if, if, if Robert is there via his, his, uh, voice on earth, Steve. Um, but, uh, do you want to talk about some of the things that we were hitting with the, with the T6 and in our case here too, actually? Yeah. So the T6, you know, we have a PCIe connection on the board that's soldered to the gimlet, um, with the Milan processor. And so, you know, pretty, pretty quickly after we got, uh, power sequencing set up there, we were able to uh, start communicating over PCIe um, with that thing, I think, right? We were, I think we were talking, well, I guess. No. 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 <laughs> I mean, we thought we were at one point in time, but like, a- as we went through it, probably we weren't. And it's like, there's not that much stuff for that chip. I mean, it's got a few strapping options, and um and a, a big PCIe lane, and it is that thing is not one to come out of reset. RFK, right. do, 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 so well, we, it's, it's and also, for context, this this is the the nick in this, this NIC, server yep. sled in the yep, server so sled. And a, just to be really clear, like very yeah, important, like yeah, we our, need this our, thing to work. Yes, our company does not exist if this doesn't work, right? So uh, this is the yep. dual hundred gig nick and. Um, you know, we have, there's a lot of software that we have created to get access to the PCIe stuff. And so like Robert has done a great job, uh, like untwisting all of the like deep details, um, on, you know, the Milan's PCIe cores and everything, but, but we have a lot of software that like, hasn't been totally checked out in here. And then in addition to this, we were struggling to get this chip to respond the way we expected it to over PCIe. Well, and in particular, this thing is just not coming out of reset. Yeah. And, and the, uh, RFK, we, the, we we pulled up the, the, the clock, and it was pretty clear that the, the, that the clock was could use some, some improvement. Sure. It, it could be better. I mean, and, well, and then we, we got it better. And, and then, then it did not come out of reset. Well, okay. It got a bunch better, of problems. Like, um, RFK and I were out there in, in February, and it was like, I mean, we, we basically – uh, off offboarded the chip. I mean, offboarded the clock to uh, to our own clock generator, and we used a. Cl- I mean, so we desoldered and and hacked on SMAs, and because the clock was looking bad, I, it, it turns out it after can, going uh, back through it, we realized that due to the part shortage, we had uh, dual stuffed oscillators to have options, and and both of them were actually still stuffed and. And we're driving the PLL chip, and that was making the PLL chip a little bit unhappy. Wait, wait. So, Nathaniel, does this mean we had both parts on the board, so yes. that if we weren't able to source one, we'd be able to just like? Ha- but it's always intended to sort of be half populated, right? We're Correct. Not- yeah, we okay. we only need one of the two possible oscillators we can use here. However, and um, we need exactly one. We need exactly one, and no more. That's right. And, and as we went through bomb generation for the board, uh, you know, something got lost in translation and we ended up actually um, both buying and uh, soldering in both circuits in addition to the like optional resistor that connects both of them. So we had two, you know, 50 megahertz clocks or whatever trying to drive the, um, the clock chip. And it turns out that um, the PLL, you know, does some like clock cleaning and it's like kind of good, but it gets a little bit mad when it's one input has two clocks. And 
you get some non-monotonicity in your signal and it just won't go away. Right. And you can like try to change the termination around and stuff. And it just like doesn't stop. And it's very strange because it looks like termination issues, just right. like impedance mismatches, but turns out that that's incorrect. And I'm shocked the thing works at all with two clocks. Well, and, yeah. But, I, yeah. And so we, we probably spent a good like two days or more chasing that down. Right. Well, to the point of, yeah, like you had said, like basically we removed everything and <laughs> de like and jacked in an external clock, bought a clock generator that didn't get there in time. So we used a dev board of the same chip that is on the board in order to get the new signal piped in the best clock possible. We're sure it was going to work, fired it up and it failed. Which was really and it, sad, it, and it failed exactly the same way yeah. that it did two days before. No information available from this large effort. Um, it, excellent. It, when I feel like this was I, this, it was such a flashback to the SP3, where it's like we just could not get this thing to come out of reset. And What's the power this time. And, and exactly. That's right. Well, and, <laughs> and then start talking about the Eye of Sauron. Well, and we don't know what this thing is. And it's like, and and Nathaniel, who had who come out to Emeryville for the sidecar bring up, I mean, RFK, poor RFK. RFK used to doing all this, like, because I, all these hypotheses take time. And so RFK is sitting there reworking this thing over and over and over again. Nathaniel's like, I'm going to go out there just to help him. And that was, was that the first week of February, Nathaniel? That you, that, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, we are going through absolutely everything in this part. Uh, Chelsea is being helpful, but on the other hand, we're hearing, you know, we don't, we got, we've never seen this before. It's like, Oh shit, this again. But the, you know, uh, why is this thing not coming out of reset and exploring? Uh, and I, we got the, Nathaniel, you were out for that week. And I think that you came out with confidence that you and our affair was going to get that nailed in that week. And Robert would get that nailed. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought between three of us focused on that issue for, you know, five days or, you know, most of five days, we and we would ha like there just there are only so many things. And, and you know, I mean, on Friday, as I had to go catch the train, like I was just it was kind of sad because, you know, it was like, oh, you know, we we didn't like we're no different than when I came out on Monday. And I mean, we know a lot of things. That <laughs> right. But and we've made a lot of improvements and found various problems, but none of them have really like moved the needle. And then like I had to go on vacation. So I was like, you know, headed home and then like out of the office for the next week. Oh, and the theater, I liked it at the end of the week. You're like, well, in conclusion, this thing should be coming out of reset. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I demand it to be so. <laughs> and then I feel it was about this time that maybe that that next week, because I think. On the end, again, I'm not sure if, if Steve and Robert are there, but Arian, you, back to Sidecar, you have the big breakthrough of actually getting this thing talking over Gen 3 in the middle of that week. Like the, I think the, the 11th is the so date that sticks my head. I, I think that uh, I was on the train and I got chatted that Arian had made a big breakthrough, I think. So like that happened that Friday, I feel like that Friday. Okay, yeah, but it was so that yeah, was... I, I waited until Nathaniel was gone, and that's when I turned it on. <laughs> there you go. That's the asshole I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the I just remember 
getting like we now have this very sophisticated part in terms of the Tofino that is now doing we're doing really well. And I think it was then, Arian, that I just remember really shouting at the T6. It felt really good actually to shout at the T6 to be like, you know, everybody is here. T6. We've got like the SP3 is here. Tofino is here. We've got the management network here. We've now brought all these parts out of reset and this fucking Nick just will not come out of reset. Um, And then I step into the picture where everyone has been working on it really hard. And I've been watching from the sidelines. Well, Rick, I was going on and watching all the work. I was going to walk us up to that by saying you and I are having a conversation about this. I am feeling down i am like in part because nathaniel very optimistic engineer nathaniel's like in conclusion i have no fucking idea what's going on and so rick you and i are talking and you're and i rick i just remember you being like we'll get there we're gonna figure this out and i'm like i'm really not sure that's the case (laughs) i am really like i i want to believe you but rick you were very uh you're like look we'll get there and then i think rick with that teed up and thankfully Rick has a history of modifying off-the-shelf boards to help us out. Yes. So because, Rick, you, yeah, you're right. right. So, like Rick has an ethanol that's missing like thirty percent of its bomb <laughs> and still boots. Right, and so that was the same thing here. As I, I had a couple of T6 add-in cards that I had used for a variety of early experimentation. So I don't, I don't mind modifying them and seeing what happens. And with this, you know taking the same approach. Okay, so we have a design that we made that we've been hacking on and trying to get working. We can't figure out why it won't start. So there's a whole lot of things it could be. And it's sure we can spend a lot of time trying each of those, but we're not it it you know, you're kind of rolling the dice as to can I guess which thing it actually is that's wrong. And so I took the opposite approach. I took a known working board and just started modifying it to be closer and closer and closer to our reference design or uh, to our, our actual design until it broke. And uh, in this case, it took, I think, three tries. Um, and it, it was really, you know, some informed guesses. We, we had looked at a lot of things already, so I knew which areas to look at. I had talked with Chelsea and had some ideas of why we might see the behavior we did. And it turns out that there's some strap uh, resistors. So essentially, you you know you have some resistors that pull a pin to either ground or VCC to set some initial configuration. And a couple of those on the T6 choose which clock source to use. And this is really important because it's the clock source that's used for the a very 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 early startup of the chip. So the very first thing it should do is go through this hardware-based sequence of loading some configuration out of a spy ROM and then actually starting up. And then you should see some output on pins. And we weren't seeing this, this happen. And so that's why we were focusing on clocks so much as we thought, oh, it's just got to be, a, you know, the quality of the clock going in is not good enough. Well, I changed the resistor from the value that was on the add-in card, which was suspiciously small at 500 ohms. And I put in what we have listed in our bomb for our design, which is 10K ohm, and it doesn't work. It doesn't and work in the same way that ours does not work. In exactly the same way. And so I typed this into chat, and I think it was pretty late, because like you said, Brian, I had talked with you at like 
3.30 p.m. Pacific time. And then I went and did this and it was, you know, 4.30 or something. People were mostly done for the day. And I say, so I changed this and it broke. So there's a very quick rush to go take one of our (laughs) gimlet boards to change out these resistors to 500 ohm to see what happens. And sure enough, it works. And the thing that's that kind of shocking about this is, Rick, it is 10K on the schematic, but RFK, you had yeah. already changed that to a 1K resistor. We have changed these probably six, seven times to 1Ks, <laughs> which should work based on the IBM specification of the IO, of the die. That should be fine. That should be fine. And Rick, you had said that, that if you had known that there were one case on there, this is an experiment that you might not have done. Right. Because, I mean, it, this was uh, being that these are pull downs, you'd expect that they don't have a lot of current draw in them and you can run fairly high values. And that's where it being 500 ohm in there in the official Chelsea reference design seemed odd. But yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have tried it had I known there. They had already tried 1K. But changing that into a 499 uh, actually worked. And Steve, I don't know if you and Robert are there, but if you got some some retelling of when that thing came out of reset, I believe. Unfortunately, I was physically out of the office. I had to go take a call. But there was, uh, there was some exuberation when that thing came out of reset. Yeah, there was definitely some exuberation. There was also, I, I think I recall, and by the way, Robert had to depart, unfortunately. So the, the value coming from this speaker drops off, drops way off at this point <laughs> in the uh, narration. But uh, yeah, no, I remember coming back into the office and a couple of, of, of loud expletives uh, that, that erupted from the folks that have been working hard at work on this one and just like kind of, just that that unbridled joy when you've been just banging away at something for so long and and not seeing a clear path to resolution and then nailing it and uh, it was it was a very exciting moment. I believe Robert was screaming, "We're gonna live! We're gonna live! We're gonna live!" over and over again. Is that correct? Yeah, there, there was definitely an expletive <laughs> yes, in the middle correct. of that, but yeah, definitely. That <laughs> that's right, right. Yeah, uh, and freight. Fucking well, five hundred ohm resistor. And like, that's one of those things. I mean, I'll remember where I was. I was on vacation and I saw that come through chat and was like bouncing off the walls. And, you know, but uh, one, I mean, one of the takeaways is like, you know, for a bunch of experienced people looking at this stuff, like you just look at pull up resistors and say, oh, yeah, we have the pull ups. But like, we really should have gotten on there and probed voltage measurements because that would have told us pretty clearly that we weren't getting pulled where we thought we were getting pulled. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that would have been even little stuff like that, especially when you're working with vendors where they don't really build all their own IP, right? So they're getting this stuff from IBM or they're getting, you know, wherever and they're implementing it and it's working in their system. And you, they, they, they're going to about go over it about as much as they say, Hey, this works and it's in the specification for the requirements that we have for our product and it's fine. Um, So they're not going to make sure that it's nice for you. And probing all these things is pretty critical because you're going to get weird stuff like this and it's going to go on your top 10 list of most bullshit things that you've had to deal with. (laughs) Well, and I also felt it was very vindicating Rick of your approach, which you had taken on Gimlet as well. 
um, it had it, it had yielded instead it, it had yielded a an ethanol X that was like missing many of its parts and still somehow booting. So it was still like valuable information. But this approach of starting from kind of the other end with something that was working and and trying to get it closer to the thing that's not working really paid dividends here. So that was a uh, that was a very big breakthrough. Um, and it was kind of a relief to, I mean, on the one hand, yes, we should have, I mean, obviously done those voltage measurements, Nathaniel, but on the other hand, like pretty surprising that that pull down has to be that strong, that a 1K was actually not sufficient. Right, right. That certainly is like not kind of what you expect when you see parts with pull downs. And so I think like that's sort of why, you know, it was easy to gloss over as we looked at it. So with with that, at uh, T6 out of reset, that was a big breakthrough. Um, another thing that we kind of hit along the way, and I'm, I know Robert is off, but the and I'm not sure if if, if Rick is still here or not, but the um, the footprint issue we had, Nathaniel, where Rick had done the rework. I don't. When did I was that? Just gonna say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, things yeah. that that you don't expect to be wrong is where pin one is on <laughs> yes. various packages. Yeah. So we had. I mean, this would have been. This would have been. Probably this was before Christmas, I think, that we determined this because um, I I think um, our PCB guy did that kind of as a project over over Christmas break. But, right, because that did a lot earlier. Um, right, but we we had this. So we have these like sixteen pin DFN packages, so they're kind of like a little QFN, and um, like various things. You know, we have this whole complicated hot plug logic network with you know things go through uh, some AND gates and some. Uh, inverters and that kind of thing and you know like in in late november early december uh you know robert and i are on a phone talking and you know he's measuring stuff on his board and it's like you know this the input to the chip it looks like a shorted output and you know, i'm looking <laughs> at the board i've got here and i'm like yep yep no i can confirm that 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 doesn't look right <laughs> that's bad right and so then you know then it's like okay well something's got to be wrong because like this you know there should be an output and an input and you can't get you know in the middle somewhere and so you know looking at the footprint looking at our cad i realized that um, our CAD had been built with basically the pin numbers all rotated by a single pin around the chip. And so, and the way a lot of these parts work is, you know, you'll have like an input and next to an output, next to a ground, next to a power. And so when you rotate them, you just get a a huge mess in your net list. And so, you know, we had realized that. And so, you know, after we realized that, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, what do you do? Because that's kind of like they're the parts are smallish. They're you know, it's they're not unreworkable, unre- but like this is probably okay. not something we want to do twelve times on our fleet. You say smallish to any normal human, they are extraordinarily small. So you describe like the actual size. I mean, these, it's, these are it's small. The size they're, the chip is like smaller than your pinky finger's fingernail. So and there's sixteen pins in that space. I was going to go like it is getting into like grain of rice territory. Well, it's bigger it's a DFN. Than, it's a DFN, so it's bigger than that. But it's, I mean, it's it's small, and and the the problem with DFNs, especially like when you're just playing around in your home lab, is that there aren't there's not much for a lead there because they're kind of leadless, and so uh, it's it's tough to you know tough to do anything with them, and then given the issue that we had, it wasn't like we had to fly a pin or something. It's like 
we need a rotate by one pin, which like your square little, you know, DFN basically can't do that. Um, and so, and so, so Rick volunteered to rework this. Yes. I, we can let him talk about what he did. I think we're also the Twitter picture, too. I mean, some, some context, right? So this is, this is a bunch of discrete logic gates that are used to do some complicated logic around the signals from a PCI edge card, you know, like a, a normal plug-in card slot. But in our case, it's a little different because we we know what's being plugged into there, and so we've we've changed some of the meaning of these signals, and we want to detect certain situations. So it was important that we actually validate that the logic worked correctly before we cut the next revision of the board. So we couldn't just you know say, oh well, we'll fix the footprint, and then in the next revision we'll actually test the logic. Like we we needed to actually validate that. What, how we thought this worked actually worked correctly and that that would work with the AMD processor um, because it, it has a lot of assumptions about the how the PCIe hot plug signaling works. So so I volunteered. Um, I, I have enough of a rework station at home that I could do this. And then they told me how many of these footprints were on a board. <laughs> um, so it was, I because... Think it was like 12. Well, because the same footprint was used for a variety of these discrete logic gates, yeah, it ended up being like 12 or 13 footprints. And I'm like, okay, so how bad is that? Well, these are, I forget what they were, like QFN. 16. 16. 16 pins. So 16 pins times, you know, 12 packages. You're, you're talking a lot of pins. And these are pretty small pitch. Um, these are super small pitch. Adam, I think if you could, you, next time you're in the office, you got to see this thing physically. It, it, this is like nuts to me. I mean, I know this is like by reworking standards, this is merely like workably small, not unworkably small, but this is really fine work. And, and that's why when I say I have a reasonable rework setup, like I have a microscope. I have, you know, a fine pitch soldering iron and you know, tweezers and all the all the setup. And I'm not set up to do really, really small things, but this was in the I can probably make it happen. Now, for people who are not familiar with this, like I'm using 32 gauge wire um, and that's big for what I was doing. So I set to work. I went through and removed all of these chips because they were all, as Nathaniel pointed out, they were doing things like shorting outputs to inputs and, and various other things. So I wanted to remove them all just to eliminate any sort of unintended behavior. And then I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to be able to sit here and <laughs> solder individual wires because I, I have to actually... What I'm what I'm doing is taking the chip and flipping it over on its back and right. hot gluing that to the PCB. You're, so you're dead bugging them, right? I, this is literally what they call dead bugging because it looks like a dead bug, right? You squished it against the back of the the PCB with its legs up in the air, and um, so now I have to attach wires to each pin on the chip and run that over to the correct pad on the PCB to fix this mistake, and. Yeah, the prospect of doing that 16 times <laughs> on 12 chips was was not good. So I started with one, and that took about 20 to 30 minutes to do one chip. 
Um, and that, that was, that was a lot. Yeah. Man. So I, I went back to the schematics and figured out, okay, if I just want to make one of the PCIe slots work so I can test this, how many chips do I have to do? Four. Okay. okay. I can do four right. chips. Right. Four right. chips yeah. is somewhat reasonable. Three and a half hours later, I oh. had been staring through the microscope the whole time, doing reworks. And the part of the problem is that as you get further and further in, you have denser and denser wiring. You have wires overlapping. And so as you're working on something, you'll you'll bump a previous one, and that's just enough um, tension. Like you didn't get a good enough soldering joint, so it'll break free or... You know, you'll melt one wire by accident when you're working on another one. So, yeah, three and a half hours of microscope work later, I had it all reworked for these four chips so that I could test that the hot plug circuitry worked the way we thought it did. And it turns out it does. Um, great. <laughs> for the most part, there, there is one quirk that we had to go back and, and rework, which is, you know, important. Had we not tested this, we would have built revision B yeah. uh, incorrectly. So it, it was important work to do, but this is the time, like for all that we talk about the time spent on things like the pull-up resistor, where you're trying to understand what the problem is. And it's actually, the fix is really trivial once you get down to it. It's, it's the hard part is figuring out what the problem is. In this case, the problem was really obvious. <laughs> right. It was so, just so, the sheer amount of effort required to do the rework that takes all the time. Rick, this is heroic. I, I, I posted uh, what I think is your picture of, of one of these chips. But one of my questions is, so how did the schematic get into ORCAD or whatever incorrectly? So this is, this is one of those uh, scenarios where, you know, you, you have to verify everything because actually the schematic is correct. So if you look at the schematic and you look at the part data sheet, everything matches. And like I was wrong. This is actually a 14 pin part, not a 16, but it's four millimeters square. So like this is not a big part. Um, but yeah, that so is a big grain of rice. I'd like to say that is in grain of rice. I think I feel for I feel I can find a, a four millimeter square grain of rice. Sorry, go ahead. So so the the uh, the symbol that we drew for the schematic was correct. But when um, when the layout person built the footprint for it, um, where they started their pin one was actually on pin two or or maybe on pin 14, depending on I don't remember which way it was rotated. Um, and so what happened, what happens in that case, then, is what we think is electrically one and what the chip thinks is electrically one. Uh, ends up actually being electrically pinned too. And so it's just like a human error mismatch between the schematic symbol that we drew and how the part is actually manufactured. And you build all of these manually kind of off a data sheet. And, you know, for a lot of parts, there are rules of thumb. But in this case, um, you know, it like it was just a human error that messed that up. But so that's how you get the mismatch. And it's kind of amazing that it doesn't happen more frequently. I mean, Nathaniel, you had made this point with Gimwit that there about how lucky we had been in so many different dimensions. Um, but it, but the, and lucky that this didn't happen more frequently, honestly. Yeah, well, most of our schematic symbols and footprints have all been like created as part of you know um, this company and and by you know various people. So we had some partners helping us with some of those. And then, you know, we, we now have some of that uh, in-house now. 
And so a lot of this has been, you know, like kind of created by a bunch of different people and, you know, a little tiny error where you just happen to, you know, miss where pin one is, you know, can have, you know, devastating effects. And, you know, as, as we go through and mature our library process, there will be more reviews and more people looking at this stuff so that there's kind of a double check uh, because, you know, like these kinds of pins can be, you know, can be this kind of, kind of a problem can be very expensive. And, but, you know, and these are like popcorn logic parts. And so, you know, we, we did a lot of looking at the T6 and we did a lot of looking at the ARM and we did a lot of looking at the SP3, but like in this case, uh, this was just missed. So, but we've, we've had very few of these, so we, we, we can be thankful for that. And our library process is getting better as well. It, it is. And we, yeah, we, I've, again, we got, we got lucky. And then on this issue, I mean, again, heroic, heroic rework from rec to at least allow us to validate the design because what we're trying, what we were trying to do in this kind of parallel to, to bringing up sidecar is we're trying to get the design for, for Gimlet completely verified. And we, we, I'm trying to, are, are there other mishaps? I mean, I feel like we, we, we hit most of the Gimlet mishaps here. Am I, Nathaniel, am I missing a glaring one? No, I, I think that was most of them. And, you know, like, and then on sidecar, I mean, I posted a, a picture in the Twitter thread about, you know, we had like the wrong package called out. So like we bought the wrong parts that didn't fit the footprint. Uh, so that was the flash part that I reworked on there. Um, but we haven't had any, you know, anything that was like that crazy of a miss from, you know, data sheet to, um, you know, to implementation. I think on Gimlet, we had, you know, some, we had to use some copper tape and beef up some uh, some power rails in a couple of places. Uh, so th that was, you know, a little bit uh, nasty in, in a certain manner of speaking for, but, you know, Eric did nice work there. Management network. That was a good one. Yeah. The management network had some polarity swapping and some, uh, you know, other issues. And I mean, like TX and RX swapping because uh, some of the parts, have kind of a, a sad symbol naming. Yeah, but there we we managed to do it wrong twice, both on the connector end and on the chip end. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. and then we and then we fixed the chip end, and then we were wondering why the link still wasn't working, and then we realized we had to reverse the connector end now too. So, yeah, that was a fun one too. Chip. Yeah, exactly. And then, Arnie, do you want to talk about kind of the, the, the latest um, update on, on Sidecar? So things, the, the, you, got, you got PCI up from a configuration perspective. Mm -hmm. Kind of the uh, a last major piece on Sidecar was actually like, okay, did the links work at all? Yeah, so with some software running now, uh, we've been working on, on a switch management uh, piece that uh, kind of can program tables and, and, and program the P4 program into, this, into the ASIC and... Uh, bring bring the links up and we recently managed to get um some links working loop backed on themselves so one port of tofino to another port of tofino uh those links and that we in the, several different configurations ranging from a short short little loopback cable to uh cables that are representative of the backplane that we intend to uh, ship with and um we managed to close the link at uh, at the uh, intended or the possible 400 gig that each each Tofino port can provide. So and and uh, but do, do you want to mention some of the, uh, the 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 hurdles we had getting there? Because I think they're 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 both kind of representative and interesting. At least two of the ones I can think of. Yeah. So uh, as as we're as as Niels and I are debugging this and we're we're 
you know can get the link up we think we have all the code right and um and so we enlist intel's help uh we set up a meeting so that they bring out some of their engineers of their of their team uh 10 minutes prior to that meeting i'm like oh let me make sure that the setup is correct like as we as we are prepping for that meeting and i lift up the board and i realize that we actually removed the loopback cable between the two ports because we were going to do some VNA measurements on another board with that same cable. And I, so I did, we did the measurements and then we, I never put the cable back. So I was like, okay, this is, well, this is one reason why this port is never going to work. <laughs> like this, is, this was not intended to be a wireless thing. This was intended to be wired. So I stick the cable back and luckily it still didn't work. So I was like, okay, fine. Like at least we didn't waste two weeks of time on just a stupid cable that we that we just forgot. And and the con- for the context here, these cables are under the board, under this metal chassis that is visible in some of these pictures. It's very difficult to see that there's no cable under there. So right, just, I know the chaos, in, in your defense that, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That, that was missed. So here we go into this call with some Intel engineers, and we walk through various pieces, and then we turn on. We, we had configured the BSP for the for the for the platform for these two boards and. Couldn't get even in test mode. We couldn't get a single wiggle on one of these on one of these links. And so uh, we're going back and forth, checking a couple of things. And it's like, well, we don't know. So what we advise you to go and do is maybe we get we just have the wrong ports here for some reason because the way this is driven in their in their SDK is you take there's this long spreadsheet that you that you that you take and then hardware engine like the the, the engineers basically fill out properties of the Certies in this spreadsheet and then they take a they there's a Python script that then takes the spreadsheet. The, the basically the comma separated values of the spreadsheet and then turn it into this JSON blob that then goes into their SDK. And then from that, they distill a port configuration that they then load into the device. So it's a multi-step process. We skipped a bunch of these pieces because we, we the, the JSON parser broke for us. So we basically built a couple of C structures that would represent that represented the port configuration for what we were, for what we were doing. So as we are debugging, we found a couple of small issues like, uh, when we were put the port in test mode, you do need to give it uh, analog tuning parameters, meaning these certies are, are are fairly complex pieces that require uh, that can basically uh, uh, well, there's tuning parameters that you need to load into these things, and without tuning parameters, the ports are never going to work. So you need at least something. So as we are on the call, one of their engineers pulls off out of one of their running systems existing tuning parameters that they found that would work for a you know 50 centimeter or one meter cable so that would be in a ballpark of what the cable that we were working with so first of all we needed to set those we hadn't set them properly um but so then as we were working the port still doesn't work and we we go through this process and they're like well you need you need to go and work out you need to basically build your entire platform you need to load all the ports into your platform so that if we for some reason have two ports connected to the wrong thing then we can you know, we can. Uh, you just you just try them all, and at some point, one of them should start working because they're connected to each other. So at some point, you should see something. And I was like, okay, fine, we can go do that work because that's. Uh, but that would that was representative of a couple hours that we needed to do. So we couldn't do that right on the call. And as we were talking, one of our engineers says, "Oh, you know what? Let's check the port numbers because uh, I don't. I remember there's a mismatch between the the, the port numbers that you, that we use on the schematic symbol and the port numbers that are used in the spreadsheet." <laughs> and as it turns out, the schematic ports are labeled 0 through 31, and the ports in the spreadsheet are labeled 1 through 32. And so the ports that we had configured were off by 1. And so after we changed the off by 1 error in our code and, re- and, and restarted the process, lo and behold, the ports worked. And they came, the link came up, and, and, and we, were, we were underway. 
Um, so it was as Brutal. if we hadn't didn't hadn't plugged the cable in, but then the cable was in the like the configuration was assuming the wrong port. So um, for those of us in software wondering about the off by one errors, it's off by one errors all the way down to hardware. That's right. Yeah, off by one. I mean, uh, and what a what a brutal. Pro- I mean, it obviously feels very vindicating to get that nailed, but also felt uh, you're just like, oh my god, it's all off by one errors. And, yeah, but the thing was that we should have had that call with them just a little bit sooner because yeah. while we didn't waste huge amounts of time because yeah. it wasn't a two week full time effort. Uh, if we because there were we simply would have missed a couple of things. Like uh, first of all, the off by one error we would have known not have known because they were they were using the exact same labels that they used on the pins of the device, like the device symbol and how they talk about it in the hardware guide. They use the exact same naming convention except in software, except then in software, everything was off by one. We would have never figured that out, I think, by ourselves. Well, maybe not never, but it would have been, that would have been a long one. Yeah. Um, and then the, 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 the transmitter parameters is something that I sort of knew about, but it didn't really, that didn't really click so much. Um, so, but. and it should be said that when we have been, you know, making all the decisions about what parts to use, a part of our of our calculus is figuring out what a partner is going to be like to work with when yes. things don't yes. work. And we've been really blessed. We've got some folks that are very, very invested in helping us figure this stuff out. I mean, in some ways, like the thing I felt best about on the T six was. Chelsea's certainty that like we will get this result like okay this is good you're not gonna ultimately we figured it out but um they were definitely as perplexed as we were on the t6 issue and um always available to brainstorm they get some serious props their their guy that we're talking with jeff he he's like the fae that will take a phone call from his customer while he's at dinner with his wife he, he, they were really, and, and which was great. I don't know if we should encourage that behavior, but it's <laughs> nice that he does. That behavior. Do not do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but do it, that for anybody, that is not like you don't have to do that. But, but it's it, like just dedicated. Could not. We were having so much trouble, and he was going to do anything. Yeah, it, it was incredible. It was deeply appreciated. I feel the same way about. I think Intel's been great on the Tofino side too. About really, and, and AMD too on when, when we had the SP3 challenges. I mean, we've really turn to these folks and you know we tend to do our homework um so we tend to be um you know tend to show up having the the the, the common stuff nailed but um, like the cables plugged in the cables plug- exactly that's right, right. <laughs> the cables plugged in. Yeah. um but yeah the i so we you know in the end i feel like we've we we're uh we've done our ebt our our revision b for EBT has taped. Uh, Nathaniel, what the what boards arrive in a couple weeks, right? Yeah, they are somewhere between where they're the actual PWBs that have are been shipped to our manufacturer. So, so th- that's really exciting. Really expect I'm going to knock on wood, but we really do expect that bring up to be uh, to be pretty smooth. I feel like we've got a lot of experience now with this thing. Um, well, we fixed a lot of things. We fixed a lot of things, uh, and we. We touched a lot of the board, but we fixed a lot of stuff. And and we also start with like with code and a level of things that just exist that did not exist on day one. The first yes, time. we have so much more debug software for all pieces in the system now. 
We do. And I feel like that's been something that's been fun is to be, get that debugging software better and better. And I feel like, I mean, it, it helped us in Sidecar. We were faster on Sidecar than we were on Gimlet because we had I thought, learned a lot from, from what we wanted to have in Gimlet. And I feel like we've made it better yet again for, for RevB here. So it's been... It's been fun. I mean, I think that that's kind of borne out a lot of the, uh, certainly our belief in the, the hardware software co-design. Um, yeah. yeah, and we're using a lot of the same parts on a lot of these designs. So, like, one thing we didn't talk about, like, Sidecar had a little, they had a, we had a missing capacitor on a couple of power supplies. But um, we had caught that issue in a design review for another design like two weeks before bring up or a week before bring up. And so that was all fresh in our mind. So as we're going through troubleshooting, you know, a, why a power supply didn't turn on it, you know, it turns out that required capacitor is required. And so like, but that helps as we start building a bank of functional circuits and stuff that we're parts we're comfortable with and parts we have good references that really helps speed things up as well. Yeah, I think we you know, we officially go from from uh, ripping up all excellent designs to be we go from from part of the solution to part of the problem in terms of like no no don't change this stuff it works. Um, you can certainly see why people have that bias, but yes, building up that all that shared knowledge is very helpful. Um, you yeah, anything I, I, I from anyone else any any kind of parting thoughts or I know we've gone on for. A, Adam, thank you for the time here. I knew this was going to be a long one. We had a yeah, lot no, I was about. fired up. I, 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 I knew it was going to be at least two hours. Yeah. Uh, um, and hopefully this, this delivered. It's been, I, it, it, it's been a, a wild couple of months here, but um, and definitely some, uh, some terrifying moments. I do feel, boy, it was darkest right before the dawn, though, because I was re in that, that conversation where Rick is like assuring me that we're going to find it. I was really not feeling optimistic. So uh, a good object lesson there too, in terms of, of just retaining that resolve and that perseverance. Uh, and then also, honestly, I feel on all of these things, I don't know how you all feel about this, but um, I think it is really important to have a team of people attacking these problems where different ideas, different perspectives, people trying different things has, has been, really essential for us yeah i i 100 agree i think you know it's so easy to get lost in in the forest and you need someone else to you know come back out and say hey look you know like rick did with the part like i'm gonna go play you know in this other space or you know we've had lots of those where it's like somebody has an idea and because you know the rest of us maybe get buried in a spot it's that external perspective that really helps unlock things <laughs> Yeah, it's been an advantage too of being a, being a bit distributed, honestly. I mean, I think a lot of people have asked, how do you do a hardware company as a distributed company and a remote company? And, um, you know, honestly, like that was a good example where I think it really helped that Rick was not in the same room as, as like RFK, Robert and me, for example, where I think that like the body, like, it was good to have like a little bit of isolation there and be willing to do different kinds of experiments. He's not tainted by our... <laughs> by exactly, by exactly. Well, and it forces conversations into these like common channels where other people can kind of opt in and opt out as they want, rather than needing to be in the room. Uh, you just have to be paying attention to a certain chat channel or something. You can always scroll back. Yeah. And that has been really, and certainly as I was going into this space, just trying to remember everything, it was very helpful to be able to go through the, the, the chat channels and the party hat emojis. We definitely use the party hat when things work. It's nice that you can go back and search the party hats for uh, the party parrot. That's, we're missing, that's right 
That's right. Yeah, we're not uh, not not fully slackified, but get the party hats. All right. Well, I know it's late on the East Coast in Central Time, um, but um, thank you everyone for for joining us. This has been a lot of fun to get these uh, these tales down. Um, Aryan, thank you for and the Aryan, Eric, Nathaniel, uh, Aaron, Rick, RFK. Um, thank you very much for Steve and Robert. Um, it's been a lot of fun to actually record these and I really enjoyed listening to our past episodes to remind myself of the, of the problems, but it's, it's going to be fun to carry this one to the future as well. 20 years from now, we will all reminisce about the one <laughs> recording we did with the, the, with the Knicks and the switches. And yes, yeah, it will be cool. It'll be good. The 500 ohms, man, the 500 ohms that <laughs> saved the company. That would, that would, trauma. So. <laughs> totally. Trauma. You forced relive the trauma. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks.